The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where we're working every single week to bring you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. Today we're going to do a little Q&A day because we missed that in October, since it was the day before the big National Real Estate Summit, and I was, uh, I don't know, sort of distracted and not feeling like I could take a bunch of questions, and also Robert Mohan was in town, so we decided to just go ahead and do an interview, an X-Factor interview with him. So we're going to make up for it today, even though it's not the last Wednesday of the month and take your questions at 877-772-9658. That's alternative number one is call in your questions at 877-772-9658. Alternative number two is that you need to uh, send an email. And the email address is askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Either one of those is fine, you know, and whatever you want to ask. If it's about finding deals or exit strategies or getting money, structuring deals, whatever. That's what Q&A day is for. Any investing question you might have, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. While we are waiting for the questions to start rolling in, the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati has its first meeting for the month of November tomorrow night. Topic is an interesting one. It's about making money in vacant land, whether you are flipping that vacant land or whether you are uh, going to like buy it and then sell it to someone on owner financing and collect an income instead. Surinder Sharma is going to be there talking about his business that he's built in vacant land and uh, it's open to anyone who has an interest in investing in real estate in the tri-state area You can get a free guest pass or RSVP at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's CincinnatiRIA.com. So the questions for Question Answer Week are starting to come in via email at askvina at gmail.com. This question is from... 
Barry, who is somewhere in Ohio. I know that because the question he's asking is about Ohio. His question is, I'm trying to find out whether you have asked or know someone who has asked for a definitive decision by the Ohio Division of Real Estate as to whether a principal, not the owner on title, may list a property on the MLS in Ohio. So with a property under contract, can the investor list the property on MLS, presumably to cash buyers or buyers with hard money only? I know it's been done. I know a lot of times it depends on the broker. I don't even touch it because they think it is illegal. Or most Some don't even touch it because they think it's illegal, I guess, or very least a gray area. That's why I'm asking if anyone has ever officially asked the state for clarification. So uh, the quick answer, Barry, is no, I have never asked. And I don't, I'm not aware of anyone who's asked the state of Ohio for clarification on this issue. And I'm not sure that if the question is, can I list a contract on MLS? Because that's really what you're doing. You're not listing a property. I'm not sure that they would even be the right people to ask. And I say that because the local MLSs have their own set of rules about things. And I would think that the correct, the correct people to ask about that would be the, the division or the board of the board of realtors in the area where the property is, uh, because they're the ones who own the MLS in the area where the property is. Now I can tell you for sure, well, not for sure, whoever, whoever knows for sure when dealing with a bureaucracy, but I can tell you that in all likelihood, the Ohio Division of Real Estate is not going to be in favor of you listing any property anywhere that you don't own. And when you're, when you're wholesaling a property, it's not the property that you are selling. It is the contract on the property that you are selling. I can also tell you that our local MLS here does not have like a special category that would say, I'm not selling a property, I'm selling a contract. I have seen agents list properties that they had under contract and they had wording in the listing that said um, uh, properties under option from the real estate agent or something like that. There was some kind of disclosure about what was going on. Uh, Also, you could run across problems with the division about whether or not using photos of the property that the contract represents is a problem or not. I have heard them say that, uh, I've heard them say correctly or incorrectly that you can't use pictures of the property represented by the contract because that is not is that is not what's for sale the the pick the property itself is not what is for sale so in terms of can you put it in MLS I think it's going to depend on both whether you can get an agent who wants to do it and also what the rules of the local MLS are in terms of are you going to have trouble with the division of real estate that's that that is probably a bigger question than can I list it 
in MLS. You're listening to Question Answer Week on Real Life Real Estate Investing. Our number here in the studio for your questions is 877-772-9658. Also, um, you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Question from Lisa, who does not say where she is from. Do you include the time a repair person uses to pick up supplies at the hardware store, for instance, in what you pay someone? I recently paid an electrician $300 to replace a garage light and take down a couple of fans, and he only took about an hour, but he did have to pick up the light fixture. Did I get ripped off? Uh, Well, Lisa, um, it's a little weird that you were paying the electrician by the hour at all. Most of the time, the way the way these things work is that the electrician says, "I will, I will replace your garage light for three hundred dollars." Not, not, I will replace your garage light for a hundred and fifty dollars an hour. And the reason, of course, that people who get a lot of work done on their properties prefer it that way is so that uh, things like, well, I'm not actually working on your house, I'm actually running to the hardware store to pick up a fixture, don't become longer than they need to be. I mean, when you're paying paying somebody to do a job like that by the hour, you're sort of depending on them to think about and control their own time and to just tell you how long they think it's going to take by saying, I will do it for this much money. Uh, there, There is a temptation, and I'm not saying that this electrician did it or that all electricians do it or anything of that nature, but there is a temptation if I'm getting paid $150 an hour to make my job last as many hours as I possibly can or $100 an hour or whatever. I'm guessing what happened here is that maybe you hired this person through a uh, general contractor who then billed you for the electrician's time, because I, I do see that, that some of the some of the services that are out there that, uh, you know, hire, hire out people by the little job like that uh, will bill you by the hour instead of by the job. So maybe that's what happened. Um, and if that's the case, you can certainly call them. You can certainly call whoever it was that you found and say, look, I have an objection to paying for this guy's time driving to Home Depot and back when he should have just gotten the fixture on his way here. He shouldn't have had to come to my house, leave my house, come back to my house. That was a a waste of time that shouldn't have happened and I shouldn't have been billed for and see what happens. I don't know if that's going to be effective or not, but you can always ask, right? So... Thanks for your question, Lisa. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. Our number here in the studio is 877-772-9658. You can also send any question you have about real estate investing to askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and you've just seen the curtain peel back on what happens here in the studio. There's a... There's a big screen here that uh, has all kinds of stuff queued up on it, and 
Mike just kind of re- reaches up blindly and touches the thing because he's... Oh, I know. He leaves his fingerprints all over it. <laughs> he knows exactly where it is, but Dave doesn't know exactly where it is because Dave's subbing for Mike today. And I've been doing this for, show for so long that I remember when they had to queue up a CD to do that. Oh, geez. Not a cart? Yep. Yep. Oh so world's come a long way. Uh, so it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. And any questions that you have are uh, fine. You know, I just had a question about an electrician and paying them to go drive to the hardware store and got a question coming up here about working for other real estate companies. So whatever you want, the... Number here in the studio is 877-772-9658 or the email address is askvina at gmail.com. Uh, got a question for, or got a, a comment here really from Jim on the last question about the electrician. He says, when you use a licensed electrician, you're paying for him having a license, having insurance, and having experience. People bill for what the work involves, not an hourly rate that was expensive for what she described. So, uh, yeah, I I guess uh, Jim has some experience with that as well, Lisa, but the the more I think about the the price you paid and what the job was for, the more I'm thinking you probably hired a handyman s- service that uh, pay that they pay the way that most of those work is they pay their contractors by the hour. They're just on a 40 hour week or whatever. And then they of course up bill you for the contractor service, which is actually fine when you have a little job like that. I mean, it's, it's hard to, get an electrician to come out and do an hour or two hours worth of work sometimes, unless it's through a service like that. Uh, let's see. Question from Fred in Columbus. Fred says, I've been presented with the opportunity to work as a wholesaler for a large real estate investor company in my market. What advice would you give when considering going to work for someone else in the industry as a contractor? Well, I got all kinds of advice about that, Fred, because I've seen all kinds of arrangements in regards to that, some of which you would probably not want to find yourself in because I think that you want to be a wholesaler yourself and that what you are hoping to accomplish is to kind of learn the ropes and get paid for that while you do it, right? You want to be in somebody else's existing established business and you want to uh, sort of see how they work and then you want to go off on your own, right? So thing number one you need to look for is I assume they're going to have you sign some sort of a an independent contractor type agreement. And you need to read that carefully because it is possible that they will include a non-compete agreement in your contractor agreement that says that you can't go wholesale properties yourself and you can't even go work for another company that wholesales properties until and unless uh, a certain amount of time has passed after you leave their employ. 
So commonly it would say something like you can't do, you can't, you can't wholesale any properties and you can't work for anyone who wholesales properties within a two year time frame and within 50 miles of where we work or in the entire state or what, you know, whatever, whatever the thing says. So if, if I am right about your goal, then that is something that you would not sign, right? You would not sign an, an agreement that said that they were locking you down to only working for them. And then if you left or got fired, not ever being able to, or not being able to do it yourself for quite a long time. The second question that I would ask about that job is exactly what are you going to be doing? Because the, uh, the way that companies like that tend to keep people from coming to work for them and running off with their business other than a non-compete agreement is that they only allow you to they only allow you to see a really specific part of the business so for instance you might be hired to cold call and nothing else you don't get to you don't get to talk to buyers, you don't actually get to see properties, you don't get to evaluate properties, all your all your job is just to dial and dial and dial and dial and dial. And then when you get somebody on the phone, get them a get 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 a, a an interview with them done and then bat it over to the whoever the acquisitions manager is, or it might be the other way around, that your job is to sell deals. And oftentimes, the way I've seen that work is that you don't, um, you don't get to call the buyer's list. You just have to maybe put out bandit signs and then take incoming calls or put out Craigslist and takes in, take incoming calls. I've even seen it done. And this I'm, I'm never quite sure how this works for the people who are working in these businesses is uh, there's five people responsible for selling and all five of them are given the same list of properties and told whoever sells it first gets paid. Now, there's another potential legal issue, which is that in order to be compensated for buying and selling properties for someone else, which is probably what's happening here, if this is a large wholesale company, they're probably actually closing the deals. You either need to have a real estate license, and this is not me saying this, this is the the law saying this. You either need to have a real estate license or you need to be a salaried employee. And it sounds here like like you're saying a contractor, you're going to be paid as a 1099. So strictly speaking, if you got paid for acquisition or got paid for sales, you would be in violation of license law. And you don't want to do that because there's some serious consequences to that, financial consequences to that. So I think you need to look at what exactly the job is, exactly how you're being compensated, and if there are any restrictions on you once you leave and decide from there whether this sounds like a good move to you or not. Most people I know who go to work for one of the big, I, I don't I don't really call them real estate investor companies because they are, um, they're not investing in real estate, they're flipping it, they're, they're treating it as inventory, not as investment. And they're really not wholesalers for the most part, they're really 
uh, property arbitragers. I mean, to me, the definition the definition of a wholesaler is that you are selling properties at wholesale prices to investors who understand how to calculate what a wholesale price is. And some of the really big companies are selling at more like eighty five to ninety cents on the dollar to people who I don't know, maybe that's the best deal they can find. I, I don't know why why people pay that kind of money for a property that needs work. But uh, they're taking advantage of the fact that it is a very hot market and that uh, there are buyers out there who will do that. And when the market slows down, those companies typically are not in business anymore. But most of the most of the folks I know who go to work for those property arbitragers don't stay very long because they find out that they they really just can't make enough money to make it work and they're not getting what they wanted out of it, which was to find out how to do the business because a lot of that is being kept from them. So I'm not saying that's the case here. I'm just saying that's, I I hear that a lot. Okay. So good luck, Fred. Let me know how that turns out for you. It's Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. It seems like most of our questions are coming in today via email at askvina at gmail.com. Got a couple more lined up here. In fact, a question from, actually, I'm going to read that one over the break because it's a little more complicated. Um, This one is from Lachelle in Indianapolis. Hi, Lachelle. She says, um, what do you do when you want to make an offer on a property, but both owners are deceased? I contacted the daughter-in-law, but she thought the bank took the house. On the assessor site and tax records, it still has the deceased couple listed. Okay, so let me tell you what probably happened here, because I've seen it a million times. The couple in question passed away. The They did not leave a will. Or if they did leave a will, the family decided not to present it to the court and open probate because they did not believe that there was enough money coming out of it to make it worth the cost and the time involved in probating the estate. So for instance, I mean, an estate, when you open an estate, you don't just get to, you don't just get to pass on your assets to your heirs. You also have to make sure that your liabilities are taken care of. It's not like, oh, here, Lachelle, here's my house, but you don't get the mortgage. You know, it's it, the, 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 the creditors have to be paid off. One of the purposes of the probate process is to make sure that any uh, bills or debts that the deceased person owed get taken care of before the the heirs or potential heirs get money out of the estate. Like it's just, it's, it's not right that I should take on a debt and then die and then be like, psych, you don't get paid back. I'm just leaving, I'm leaving my free and clear house to the kids, but I'm not paying my credit card bills. So in all likelihood, the heirs just decided either there was no will and they decided not to 
go to probate court and have probate opened without a will, which you can do. Or there was a will and they said, you know what, mom and dad, they, this this house isn't worth more than 60000 and they owe 55000 and plus they've got some Medicaid liens and some credit card bills and this and that. And they decided not to open the estate. So the question is, Lachelle, is this one of the maybe 20% of those cases where the heirs were wrong and there is some equity here, they could get some money and you could buy a house because if they are wrong and you would know that via an evaluation of the property, then what's going to have to happen before you can make an offer is an estate is going to have to be opened and the state is going to have to be opened. And it sounds like it's two estates maybe that are going to have to be opened. If neither one of them was, if neither one of the two estates was probated, then a state of the person who died first would have to be opened and probated, which the end of which would probably be that half of their stuff went to the spouse who remained, which means that then their estate has to be probated. So this is, this is going to be a little bit of a long process and every once in a while you find one that's worth it now i know you're in indiana here in ohio there is a a shorter process for estate that's also a little bit cheaper uh, called a motion for relief from administration where if we know who all the heirs are and also all of the heirs are willing to go through with this not you know not have the court sit and make all of all of these decisions for them then the estates can be probated uh pretty pretty quickly six eight weeks uh without the bigger expense of a full probate so you might want to see if that is something that's available in indiana assuming that you go to the property decide it's actually worth some money find out what's owed make sure that's not too much and then decide to proceed. So that's that's all you can really do, but it's a good question. Thank you for your thank you for your question, Lachelle. You've been listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. We've got to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna answer some more questions from Rugesh and from some other folks who have sent them in via askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. No, Mike, come back. Save us. Don't leave. <laughs> we're, 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 we're dealing with some issues here today, but it's all good. Uh, and it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means any question that you have is a uh, fair game today. You can either call them in to 877-772-9658 or you can email them to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Uh, we're going to go to line one and talk to Rugesh, who's calling from, I don't know where, where are you from, Rugesh? Uh, New York. New York, Hi. Welcome Hi. to Real Life Real Estate. Uh, thank you. Um, so I got a question. Um, I just uh, recently got into the wholesaling. Uh, I've been doing flipping and buying whole for the last three years. 
And um, actually, I did take your class in wholesaling through, uh, what's her name? I forgot. I, that was in Florida. But anyhow, um, so my question is, um, how do I, I'm trying to, um, like, uh, negotiate with the seller, the, you know, regarding a pre-foreclosure and foreclosure deals, which are off market. And the one of the sellers that I spoke to yesterday, um, I know he's going through um, marriage difficulties with his wife and so forth, and they don't want to keep the house. But but he does have a balance left about two twenty five or so, and I know the ARV is like way above three hundred fifty thousand. Uh, but the borrower is asking, you know, he wants three hundred thousand dollars. He just doesn't want to budge on it, you know, regarding the price. He knows that, you know, he can't. I know that he can't afford to make any payments and so forth. Uh, that's where they're having a financial difficulties, and uh, this is why they don't want to keep the house. So, like, how do you negotiate in terms of that situation, and how do you structure it? That's what I'm having a hard time because I guess that I'm still new in this wholesaling, and um, that's what I'm having a hard time with regarding a pre-foreclosure and foreclosure deal. So, Rugesh, let me ask you this. Realistically, if he put his house on the market, could he get three hundred for it? Like, is it in a con- I mean, though, is, is it in a condition where where it would actually sell for three hundred? Uh, well, I haven't seen the house. I only seen it from outside. Um, I was just trying to, uh, you know, trying to talk him on the phone and see if he consider selling. You know, kind of like a uh, trying to get some more information out of him. And uh, he just said, you know, I'm asking for three hundred thousand dollars. Okay. I haven't uh, looked at the property from inside yet. Have you had any conversation with him at all about what's been updated and what hasn't? Uh, no, not yet. He just told me this is the main conversation that we had. So, um, but I know I got to, uh, you know, find out if, if there was any more updates on any repairs needs to be done or not. That's what I need to find out, I guess, right? Well, yeah, that's that's part of it. But I'm 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 really I really want to address a bigger picture here. Which is uh-huh. that um, when a seller is not motivated, and even though he's getting divorced or whatever, and also behind in his payments, I think he's right. pretty <laughs> clearly telling you he's not motivated. That's what I figured, but and the only reason it got me thinking was um, that I know specifically because I got this insider um, information through the bank. Uh, that's how I found out that they don't want to keep the house. Mm-hmm. Even though he's not staying it, it doesn't seem like he's motivated, mm-hmm. but I know that they don't want to keep the house they're in right now. Well, there's a lot of people who want to sell their houses that I also wouldn't call motivated. Because cause mm-hmm. by, by motivated, I don't just mean like, oh, hey, I'd like to sell my house. I mean like, right. I need to sell my house and it's much more important to me to do it quickly and easily and, you know, whatever than it is to get right. my best price. So if he has a property that he could just list with a real estate agent and uh-huh. he could get 300 for it, what, what, you have okay. to, what you have to think about is why would he not do that? Right. Why would, right. He, why would, yeah. he, why would he sell to you if, if it is, even if it's his belief, whether, whether or not it's actually true, if it's his belief that he can get three hundred for it, why would he not want to uh-huh. walk away with fifty thousand dollars? I mean, it's not, or seventy-five thousand. You said you said the balance was two twenty-five, right? Yes. So the the price you would have to offer, I just did some quick math, is not too far above what he owes. 
mm-hmm. and that's assuming the repairs are pretty minimal. Okay. Which we don't we don't know that because you know it's, right. it's entirely right. possible the house is pretty outdated or whatever. Um, uh-huh. So he can either he can either accept your offer, which is basically going to be something like, well, I can, I can make sure that it doesn't go to foreclosure, and that's about it. Or if if, if he can get three three hundred, obviously he's going to get the three hundred. So. You know, people people work from enlightened self-interest. They don't they don't do things because they're dumb or because you want them to do it that way. They they typically weigh mm-hmm. their options, and sometimes in weighing the options, they will decide. You know what? I would rather sign a contract with Rugesh for two fifty and just not have to think about it anymore because. I'm having all this trouble with my wife and I've already moved out and I just, I don't, I don't have any mental energy to spend on this. But sometimes the decision they make is I need to get as much money out of this as I possibly can. And it sounds like that's the decision he has made here. So when when somebody says something to you, like I want 300 and I'm not going to take a dime less and you, and you believe him, you, Mm -hmm. you, that's, that's an unmotivated seller. And what you should probably okay. do is put him on your list to call back every 30 days. Now, the, the, the foreclosure process in New York takes forever. Yeah, that part <laughs> I knew. <laughs> and the thing is, uh, I think it just um, is a foreclosure process just started. It was, his file is going to get sent over to the uh, uh, local attorney's office. Yeah. Uh, just because, you know, they don't want to keep the house and so forth. They don't want to make the payment. So the foreclosure. The foreclosure procedure is going to start. So let's say if I call him after 30 days, and let's say if he's interested, say, okay, Rukesh, I want to do a business with you, you know, uh, offer me your best price, what you can do. So then how does it work? Because the foreclosure hasn't even started yet since it takes forever <laughs> in this New York State. Well, because he appears to have a lot of equity, and again, we don't know that yet because you don't know what the condition of the property is. Uh-huh. It, it, it's entirely possible that it would just proceed like any other deal. Regular transaction. Yeah, as long as as long as okay. whatever whatever money is being brought to the closing will just pay off the mortgage and any back taxes. You don't have to treat it any differently than you would treat gotcha. any deal. The ones that you have to treat differently are the ones where uh, let let's say that let's say that the numbers were the other way around. Let's say he owed uh-huh. three fifty. Okay. And what you could pay was three uh, was two twenty five. Right. <laughs> then it would be a short sale. Okay. Right. So so you wouldn't just right. be getting the you wouldn't just be getting the seller to agree. You'd be getting the seller to agree, and then you would start the process of negotiating with the bank to try and get them to agree. And that has right. to be treated differently because um, typically, short sale agreements are not assignable. So as a wholesaler, you either need to figure out how to how to use transactional funding and get it closed and then resell it, e- even if it's the same day. Or you have and there's I I have oh, I do have a really good transactional funder up in that area. By the way, if you want to send me an email, I'll send you his information. Um, okay, sure. And or, or you have to you know assign your assign your company instead of the contract itself. That that's where foreclosures get different. So. Let me suggest how to proceed with this particular guy, okay? Okay, okay. I would say... So uh, I can send you the email? Yes, you can send me an email. But with this particular guy, what you need to do is uh-huh. ca- is call him back and say, 
I need a little bit more information about the property before I can run my numbers and decide whether or not 300 makes sense. And you already know it doesn't, but I need to know how, you know, how old's the furnace, how old's the roof, how old's the kitchen, how old's all the, all the stuff you would normally ask. And and then once you've gotten that information, you're going to say, listen, my number that I'm coming up with, with my formula here is way lower than what you're asking. So I know you've got other right. you've got other things you want to try here. I know you've got a little while. Um, I want to call you back in about you know thirty or sixty days and find out how it's going because you know I want you to try and get three hundred. I think it'd be great if you can okay. get three hundred. I know I can't give you three hundred. So is it okay if I right. call you back in a month or so and just see how it's coming together for you? Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, all right. So um, yeah, I'll send you the email up uh, at ask. Bina at gmail.com, correct? About yep. that transaction yep. funding yep. guy? Yep. Okay. All right. All, All right. right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, Ragesh. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for Thanks calling. You listen to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week, and we're doing all kinds of different topics, obviously. So uh, if you have one you'd like to discuss, call 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com, and we'll be back right after this. This isn't on. <laughs> well, we're getting this. We're getting this straight out one thing at a time. The music works now, so that's good. Next time, we'll turn the mic on at the same time that I'm supposed to be talking. Walk and chew gum. <laughs> You're just sitting there. I even. You listen to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones Cox. Engineering today is Dave Schram, not Mike Martini, as usual. So we're. Um, we're slowly learning the process together here of how live radio shows work here in the studio. It's question and answer week, and we are uh, looking at a bunch of questions here, a lot of which came in via email at askvina at gmail.com. So I'm going to tackle some of those Um question here from Muad and I, I should be able to figure out where he's from because he put his phone number on here but I don't actually know what his area code is uh, so hopefully Muad you're listening and you know where you're from uh, he says hi Vina met you at last year's convention my question pertains to buying my second rental home in my location houses are expensive and 20% down would be around $30,000. I can't seem to save that to put down toward my second rental. Do you have any advice? Yes, Muad, you are facing an issue that a lot of potential real estate investors face, which is that conventional financing requires you to put down uh, down payments of anywhere from 20 to 25%, depending on whether you are buying your first through fourth or your fifth through 10th rental property conventionally. And in addition to that, you can figure on another 5% or so in points, closing costs, fees, all that sort of stuff. So the number may even be higher than you think it is. It may be, it may be more than $30,000 to uh, buy that next rental property. So the way that uh, folks get a, a, around this, quote unquote, it's not really around it, it's just bypassing it altogether, is through the creative use of other people's money. 
and by creative I don't mean like illegal I mean like just you know seriously we're gonna we're gonna go out there and find people who have something that we want and we have something they want which in your case would be a an interest in a real estate deal and we're gonna get together and we're going to talk about uh, how we might work together so picture this are there any folks out there who have thirty thousand dollars for whom thirty thirty or even thirty five because some of those costs have to be also paid right they have thirty or thirty five thousand dollars and they would really like to put it into owning a rental property but what they don't want to do is they don't want to find the deal they don't want to do any rehab the deal requires they don't want to deal with the tenants collect the rents do evictions when necessary like that's just not their thing they're they're passive investors they just want part of the tax breaks and part of the income. Could you partner up with a person like that? And could you could they put the money down and maybe even be the ones to qualify for the mortgage? And then the two of you or your two companies, as the case may be, uh, would then co-own the property and you would split the profits, the tax breaks, the appreciation, the mortgage pay down, all of that sort of thing. Now, a lot of real estate investors would say, I don't want to do that because I want all of all of my deals. But if you had 10 people like that, and there are a lot more than 10 people out there who would love to do that, that means that you could own half of 10 deals instead of your current situation, which is you own all of one deal. Which one is better, half of 10 or all of one? And you can't get a second one. So that's one option. Partners are one option. Now, you're not just going to run out and do this. You're going to sit down with you and your potential partner are going to sit down with an attorney and you're going to create a really detailed agreement about things like um, exactly how and when is the income going to be split. Usually in an arrangement like that, it would be quarterly, not monthly. It would not be every month we're going to collect the rent and just pay the expenses and split it. It would usually be done quarterly because that's just, it's just more realistic to say, let's not look at each and every month's income and expenses. Let's look at it on a quarterly or maybe half year basis. The other question is who's going to control that money? Who's Who's got access to the bank account? Because in the first year, probably no one's getting any money from the rent because you're probably saving up some reserves for that property that can be accessed if something goes wrong. So there's all this, uh, there's this stuff to think about. But once you kind of get it down pat and say, this is how I do partnerships, then then going out and finding the people who have the money and don't want to do the work is actually pretty easy. Another option is to just not do bank financing at all. There are private lenders out there who will loan you money on terms different than you're only allowed to borrow 80% of what you paid for the property. Uh, A lot of private lenders will loan you 100% of what you paid on the property and then maybe even 100% of what it costs to fix it as long as the amount of their loan does not exceed 70% of the value of the property. So you're you're talking about some pretty expensive properties here if you're saying... 20 per well, no, $150,000 house. You're talking about $150,000 house. If you found one of these $150,000 houses and you were able to both buy and fix it for a hundred, 
a private lender somewhere would just loan you the $100,000 and let you pay them back instead of paying the bank back. And if they didn't want to keep their money in that deal for years and years and years, that's obviously a problem if you're going to rent the property. So your strategy would be buy it and fix it with a private lender for $100,000, put a tenant in it, and then after one to two years, then go to the bank and say, I want to refinance this. Because you don't have to put 20% down when you refinance it. You just have to have 20% equity when you refinance it. So on that $150,000 house, the bank would, in theory, all fixed up with a tenant in it, uh, loan you 120. So you could borrow 120, pay back your private lender, actually have $20,000 in extra borrowed money for yourself, and then go do it again with the same private lender. Plus, you would now have some money to make a down payment on a conventional loan if you wanted to. The third option is really look for deals where you can get owner financing, where the seller the seller is is willing and anxious to let you take over their loan or pay them payments or something like that. If you want a little more information on that, I recently interviewed Augie Bylot, who that's that's kind of what he does. Uh, I want to say that was maybe back in September, August, somewhere in through there. And if you go to realliferealestate.com, which is our website, you can find all of the all of the interviews from years and years and years worth of real life real estate investing shows. Just look for Augie Bylot. That's your important name. Question from Paul, who, as I recall, is in Dayton. He says, have land banks helped or hurt your business and how? Um, Well, the answer is land banks have had very little effect on my business for, for folks who are not in a state where land banks are a thing or a big thing. Uh, land banks in Ohio are state chartered nonprofit kind of, they're, they're almost like NGOs that were put into place to, during the housing, during the you know financial crisis to try and deal with the thousands and thousands and thousands of abandoned properties that were around the state of Ohio. And the way they operate for the most part is that in the case of a tax sale, when in, in the case of a situation where somebody's gotten like super far behind on their taxes and the property's going to be auctioned off at a sale, the the land bank can effectively just claim that property. They don't have to pay off the back taxes like you would if you wanted to buy it. And they don't have to they don't have to go bid in an open bidding situation with other potential buyers on the property. They just kind of say, oh, we've decided we want that property. Now, if that sounds a little weird to you that that there are organizations that can can just pick a property out of the tax sale so that it's not out for open bid and that investors and other people have no shot at getting them during that tax sale. You're not the only one who thinks so because in uh, Montgomery County, where I think you're from, Paul, 
somebody has sued the Montgomery County Land Bank in federal court, and they're actually seeking class action status on behalf of 2,000 people in Montgomery County whose properties have been claimed by the land bank over the last few years. And the argument is by simply being able to pull the properties out of the tax sale and say, we own it now, the land bank has deprived the folks who owned those houses of a process that could have landed them with money. The way tax sales work, at least here in Ohio, is the minimum bid is the amount of the taxes due. So let's imagine that's $10,000, just to make it a nice even number. And in the bidding process, the minimum bid is $10,000. So I go and I say, I will pay $10,000 for that property. But then there's somebody else at the sale who likes it more than I do. And they might say, well, I'll pay 12000 And then someone else says, I'll pay 15000 And the bidding gets all the way up to $30,000. Well, guess what happens to the $20,000 that is over the ten that was due to the taxes? It either goes to whoever is next in line in the, in the line of creditors. So if there was a first mortgage, then it would go to the first mortgager. But very often... These properties are free and clear, so that money would be due back to the owner. And these owners are saying that by not letting it go to an open sale, you deprived us of a lot of equity, and they are suing the land bank, and more suits are expected. So it hasn't affected my business, but boy, it's affected some sellers. Thanks for your question, Paul, and to all the folks who ask questions on Question and Answer Week. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.